So this evening I'm going to look at another parable, and this is the parable of the arrow, the poisoned arrow, the arrow. I'm going to start, though, by reading um, a few verses from what many consider to be the earliest uh, layer of uh, teaching that we find in the Pali Canon. It comes from a collection of uh, short uh, discourses called the Atakavaga, which means the chapter of eights. And I've selected a few verses from the opening chapters of this uh, section. But just, just listen to what they say. Wrong-minded people do voice opinions, as do truth-minded people too. When an opinion is stated, the sage is not drawn in. There's nothing arid about the sage. Dropping one, you clutch the next. Urged ahead by self-concern, you reject and adopt opinions as a monkey lets go of a branch and seizes another. One who dwells in ultimate views and presents them and presents them as final will declare all other views inferior. He has not overcome disputes. The sage lets go of one position without taking another. He's not defined by what he knows. Nor does he join a dissenting faction. He assumes no view at all. Embrace what you see and cross the flood. The sage is untied to possessions. Having extracted the arrow, take care. Don't long for this world or the next. Now that gives you a taste of the kind of ideas, the kind of teaching, the kind of outlook that we find in these early poems before the Dharma became Buddhism. These texts probably relate to the period before the, before the Buddha had established a, 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 you know, a, a very settled community. Before perhaps they'd worked out doctrines. This is the voice you hear before those kinds of institutions, those kinds of 
um, doctrinal systems and theories have emerged. I chose the last verse that I read because it does refer to the arrow. But most of these early poems in the Atakavaga don't mention Buddhist doctrines at all. Um, I think it's striking that the arrow appears, but not the whole theory around it. So once more, this points to the possibility that um, metaphor and parable tend to be earlier, go back to the origins of a teaching rather than the more elaborated theories and doctrines. So this final verse says, embrace what you see. And again, embrace is as in fully know, comprehend, parinya, the first task. And cross the flood. Having extracted the arrow, take care. Don't long for this world or the next. All of these verses, I think, present the Dharma as um, a pragmatic therapy. Pragmatic in the strict sense of the word, meaning that what the Buddha is concerned with is how do we act? How do we do something that actually makes a qualitative difference to how we live. In other words, you judge the teaching not by whether it's true or false, right or wrong, but by whether it works or not. And by works, we mean works in your case or not. It's pragmatic. It has to do with outcomes and effects, irrespective of whether it's true or false. And so the very first of these verses that I read said, wrong-minded people do voice opinions, as do truth-minded people too. So in other words, if you're caught up in this uh, debate between what is true, what is false, what is right, what is wrong, you're still locked into the habit of being committed and attached to certain opinions, uh, fixed views, dogmas. And this approach of the Dharma is one that, from this perspective at least, has really no interest in right and wrong, true and false, but rather does this practice make a difference in the quality of your life or not? Does it actually benefit you or not? Does it cure or heal you or not? That's the perspective. But it's not just a pragmatic therapy because it's not concerned just with dealing with a particular illness or a particular um, you know, problem you have. But it's 
an approach that deals with the question of life itself. How do we live? How do we flourish as human beings? This is a, a medicine for the soul, if you wish. And what's significant here is that this approach is uh, effectively a form of skepticism. Now, today, when we hear the word skeptical, or he's a skeptic, or skepticism, we think of it generally negatively. Someone who's not really prepared to uh, accept anything uh, as being the case, but is always throwing up objections, uh, never willing to come to an agreement. That sort of person we think of as a skeptic. But that's a very debased use of the word skeptic. The Greek uh, term from which it comes is skepsis. And skepsis simply means inquiry or investigation. In other words, a skeptic, in the deeper sense of the word, is somebody who's always asking questions, always probing into what's the case. But doing so in a in, in a focused, uh, philosophical way uh, that is seeking sincerely for truth, for understanding. A skeptic might doubt that truth can ever be found, but a skeptic will nonetheless remain committed to investigating his or her experience, investigating truth claims, as to whether, in fact, they hold water or not. So, the text here that says, the sage lets go of one position without taking another, nor is not defined by what he knows, nor does he join a dissenting faction, he assumes no view at all, is, as I would understand it, um, a sceptical perspective, a, 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 a hesitation, a, a caution around adopting any position, but rather to keep the mind open, to keep the mind inquiring, questioning, without foreclosing the matter by saying, that's the answer. So the Dharma is not founded on metaphysical certainties. It's not based upon holding any particular view or opinion about the nature of reality or the world or the self. First and foremost, the Dharma is a response to dukkha, usually translated as suffering. But we must be careful here too. It doesn't just mean suffering in the sense of pain. Dukkha is really shorthand for life itself. But life in the sense, as we say in the expression, well, that's life, or c'est la vie. In other words, life is not 
suffering in the sense that it's always painful or difficult or whatever, but life does have a tragic dimension. Even the most uh, beautiful and most joyous experiences won't last. They'll come to an end, or we'll get sick, or we'll die. So dukkha is just a kind of a flag in Buddhism that points to how life, um, whatever its nature, has a poignant or a tragic dimension that we ignore at our cost. It's about really reminding us to have, have a sense of the whole picture, not just the bit we like or the bit we don't like, but to see the whole thing. And that's very much, I feel, what we try to accomplish on a retreat like this, to try to look at the totality of our experience, of our existence, and be able to embrace that. Now that's just a preamble, just an introduction to this uh, parable of the arrow that I'm now going to look at in a little more detail. But I've given you a background that may not make a lot of sense right now, but I think as we proceed, you'll get the point. Uh, this parable of the arrow is found um, in a dialogue between the Buddha and a man called Malunkyaputta. Uh, for those of you who want to look it up, it's uh, discourse number 63 in the middle-length uh, discourses of the Buddha. Now, the story starts by this fellow Malunkyaputta. We don't know who he is. Um, he, he comes up to the Buddha and he says, look, um, you're not telling me something. You're not telling me whether the world has a beginning, whether the world has an end, whether the universe is finite, whether the universe is infinite, whether the mind is one thing, the body another, or whether the mind and the body are the same. And you're not telling me also what happens after death, whether you will continue to exist after death or you won't continue to exist after death, or whether you both continue and don't continue after death somehow, or whether you neither continue nor don't continue after death. In other words, all the logical possibilities. And since you won't tell me any of this stuff, then I'm not going to study with you. I'm not going to train with you. And if you still refuse to give me answers to these really big and important questions, then I'm going to leave. I'm going to disappear. I've had enough. So again, we can see that this is again someone who's on a quest. He's looking for something, but he feels that he can't really rely upon a, a spiritual teacher unless that spiritual teacher tells him what's what. What is the nature of reality? He doesn't mention this, but we could probably include here, does God exist or not? Is there a God? Is there not a God? Today we could also add, I think, the question, is there free will? Or is there no free will? It's these kinds of questions that people far more intelligent than me, at least, um, 
are still struggling with two and a half thousand years later. We still don't really know the answers to these questions. Um, and that somehow makes the Buddha's point, I think, that these sorts of questions are endless and they will continue leading to debate and discussion and dispute. And maybe you've been involved in these debates yourself. This is the Buddha's answer. Suppose, Malunkya Putta, a man were wounded by an arrow, smeared with poison, and his friends brought a surgeon, a doctor, to treat him. But the man would say, I will not let the doctor pull out this arrow until I know the name and the clan of the man who wounded me, until I know whether the man was tall or short or of medium height, whether he was dark or brown or golden-skinned, whether he lives in such and such a village or town or city, whether the bow that wounded me was a long bow or a crossbow, whether the bow string that wounded me was fibre or reed or sinew or hemp, until I know whether the shaft of the arrow was of a wild or a cultivated wood, whether the feathers on the shaft of the arrow were those of a vulture or a crow or a hawk or a peacock or a stork, <laughs> and so on. Um, all of these things, the Buddha said, would still not be known to that man, and meanwhile he would die. So too, Malunkyaputra, if someone should say, I will not follow your teaching until you declare to, to me whether the world is eternal, etc., 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 that would still remain undeclared by me, and meanwhile that person would die. So, the point here, which the Buddha, in a sense, teases out to absurdity, is that in the situation of a person who's been wounded by an arrow and is bleeding to death, and it's a poisoned arrow as well, so there's a certain urgency to get the poison out of the system. But if such a person refuses to engage in any kind of healing or treatment or therapy to um, get him better and instead wants to know all of this information about how he got to be in this state, how he got to be suffering from this arrow. He wants to know the name of the person, where the person lives, the kind of arrow, the kind of bow, all of these things. Then, of course, he'll go on and on and on acquiring this information and by the time he gets it, and the doctor can be called, he's probably already too late to be saved. Now I think once more this illustrates how what is actually quite a difficult you know, concept to grasp, namely whether or not we need metaphysical beliefs to be able to pursue a spiritual practice, is translated into a very concrete and easily understandable story. So once again, we have a parable that when I re read it out or when you hear it, even briefly just once, leaves an impression in your imagination. You picture it to yourself. You might even 
identify in some way with this wounded person. You might feel for his plight. And you might also find similar examples in your own life. Well, whether than rather than you know, deal with a, a difficult problem, you want to get as much information and you want to get, ask people all sorts of questions about it rather than actually simply resolving and curing the problem by doing something, by acting. So then the Buddha says, well, actually, what first goes on is that um, Malunkyaputta and the other monks who's being addressed all acknowledge that this would be absurd uh, to pursue such a life-threatening situation with these ridiculous questions. Then the Buddha says, Therefore, Malunkyaputta, remember what I have left undeclared as undeclared, and remember what I have declared as declared. So he makes a distinction between what he's refusing to say anything about and what he does say something about. This is the crucial distinction. The Buddha is not interested in answering these kinds of questions. Why not? Why doesn't he you know, make these things clear? His basic answer is because that is simply not helpful. It won't actually lead you to making significant changes in how you live. It will just provide you more opinions and ideas to believe in, to become attached to, and as we saw in the earlier poems, start getting involved in arguments and disputes and debates. All of these kinds of opinions, particularly when it comes to religion or spirituality, things people take with utmost seriousness, as we know, these are often the source of enormous conflict and violence and even war, whether it's between religions or within a particular religion, much of the violence that erupts in these spheres is because one group of people hold firmly onto one opinion and another group hold firmly onto another. And I think it's very central to the Buddha's message uh, is that, that he's seeking to find a way to live in this world without getting caught up and somehow stuck in these sorts of debates and disputes. He's not, answer, he's not refusing to answer these questions because he doesn't know the answer. Um, that would be one way we might read it. The Buddha actually, his ignorance is exposed. He doesn't know this stuff. That's very much missing the point. The point is that to, the, the, to preoccupy yourself with these kinds of metaphysical beliefs is actually going to get in the way of a genuine healing and transformation of who you are. That's what the practice is about. It's about doing something. It's not about believing something. 
So what is it then? So the Buddha does, says makes no declaration about these things. He just remains silent. And there are other examples in the discourses where the same thing occurs. Is there a self? He remains silent. Is there no self? He remains silent. So many different examples that add to this list are already found in the text as well. So what is it that the Buddha has declared? What does he teach? What does he make a statement about? This is what the text says. It says, and what have I declared, monks? This is dukkha I have declared. This is the origin of dukkha, of suffering. This I have declared. This is the ceasing of suffering I have declared. And this is the path leading to the ceasing of suffering I have declared. That's the translation that appears um, in English in Bhikkhu Bodhi's version. Now, as I suspect most of you are aware, these are the Four Noble Truths. The truth of dukkha, that life, existence is suffering. The truth of the origin of suffering, which is a craving, is the origin of suffering. The truth of the ceasing of suffering, which is the ceasing of craving and the path leading to the ceasing of suffering, which is the Noble Eightfold Path. That's just standard Buddhist account of the Four Noble Truths. And that, this text says, is what the Buddha has declared. I think there's a big problem here. The way this is phrased, effectively, is to present another set of metaphysical opinions. Life is suffering. The origin of suffering is craving. The ending of suffering is the ending of craving. And the Noble Eightfold Path leads to the ending of suffering. Aren't these metaphysical claims, particularly the second one, craving is the origin of suffering? What is, there, what is different between these truth claims, after all they're called truths, and truth claims which would say the world is eternal or mind and body are two separate things or after death you are reborn. They're all the same, frankly, in terms of there being propositional claims to be true. In other words, they're sentences, they're phrases that are claimed to be true, that it's true that life is suffering, it's true that craving is the origin of suffering, and so on. That, to me, is a problem. It suggests, in fact, that the Buddha is not uh, uh, re uh, rejecting metaphysics, but he's just rejecting the wrong metaphysics. What he teaches is the right metaphysics, the Four Noble Truths. I remember um, when I was in Dharamsala as a young man and um, I'd read this uh, parable, again in one of those books in the library in Dharamsala that introduced Buddhism, um, but I'd never heard um, a Tibetan Lama teach this uh, parable. But once, um, during the, in the questions after uh, 
um, a lecture, the Lama I was studying with, was asked, but what about the questions the Buddha didn't answer? The unanswered questions, the undeclared questions. Um, uh, is this something that's important for us to pay attention to? And the Lama said, well, this is Mahayana Buddhism. In Mahayana Buddhism, we have the answers to these questions. <laughs> In the great vehicle, um, the world is eternal. The world is infinite. Mind and body are two separate things. And the Buddha is born again after death, albeit not in a way we can understand. So I think he was making a similar mistake, basically. He was taking the fact that the, what the Buddha refused to say anything about was something that the Buddha didn't really know. And what he did teach was all he knew, namely the Four Noble Truths. Whereas when Buddhism developed further and people became even more enlightened, then they actually got the answers to these questions and it's all been resolved. But what that shows to me is that at a fairly early point, uh, the teaching of the Dharma took a metaphysical turn. It took a turn away from skepticism in other words, keeping an open mind, being ever ready to question and inquire, and to be cautious about holding on to views and opinions, to systems of doctrine that were claimed to be true. In other words, uh, what was important for you as a, a Buddhist a follower, practitioner, was to accept the doctrine of the Four Noble Truths, uh, to accept that certain uh, truth claims were legitimate, and as a practitioner, you needed to commit yourself to those truths. But if we go back to the parable, um, I think this shows quite clearly that the point is not to get the right kind of information about the person who shot the arrow. Uh, the point is simply to engage in a therapeutic act that will remove the arrow and get the person better. So in other words, it's, an in, it's a very significant shift from believing something, holding opinions about something, and doing something. And that doing is essentially therapeutic. Now, all of this points to me, it provides, as it were, fuel for my fire, that this text has probably been corrupted, that the Four Noble Truths has been slotted in, I would argue at some later point, in order to affirm Buddhist metaphysics. As some of you know, I would argue that the Four Noble Truths was a later teaching that was preceded by this idea of there being four tasks to perform. So if we reread this passage with that perspective, 
I hope you'll agree that it makes a lot more sense. In other words, therefore, Malunkya Putta, remember what I have left undeclared as undeclared, and remember what I have declared as declared. And what have I declared? Embrace suffering. That I have declared. Let go of reactivity. That I have declared. See the stopping of reactivity. That I have declared. Cultivate a way of life. That I have declared. Then the text would actually be much more um, coherent. In other words, there would be a similar shift from beliefs to actions that we find in the sutta, in the discourse, um, just as there is in the final comment the Buddha makes. A shift from uh, metaphysics to a form of practice in which you act and do something that has a therapeutic outcome. So this points to the fact that the Dharma is about know-how rather than know-that. This is a distinction made by the pragmatic philosopher John Dewey, the American. Um, Know-how is savoir-faire. The know-how of an artisan or a doctor The doctor has a great deal of knowledge, but what really makes the difference is his ability or her ability to use that knowledge. They've got a skill. They know how to do something. And they can do that with intense sensitivity. It includes the whole of their body, their relationship to the patient, uh, their concern for the patient. That is a kind of know-how. Whereas know that is acquiring information about something, acquiring a body of knowledge. You know, I know this and I know that and I know all about that topic and the other topic. I'm a terribly clever guy. But I may not be particularly skilled in applying that knowledge. In fact, that knowledge might even not be very applicable. It's just something I believe to be true. So the... The parable of the arrow is really a parable about recognizing that the Dharma is about acquiring a know-how, a savoir-faire. And it's about putting to one side, not getting caught up in whether this is true, that is true, this is right, that is wrong, I know this, I know that. That has its place elsewhere, perhaps, but not in this practice. In another text, this is called the Sunakata Sutta, the discourse to Sunakata, um, the Buddha once again picks up the idea of the, um, the arrow, the removal of the arrow. And he goes even into more detail about how the arrow is actually to be removed. He talks about how 
to remove the arrow, you need the probe, in other words, some sort of instrument that will allow you to see the wound more clearly. And that probe is mindfulness. In other words, close, careful attention to what's going on, in this case, in the patient's wound, in our case, in our own inner life. And it will require the scalpel or the knife of panya, wisdom or intelligence or understanding. So when we come to remove the arrow, we need to be able to see things clearly with mindfulness and we need the incisive um, a blade of intelligence to know how to understand what's going on clearly and accurately. So in other words, this leads us to um, another way of understanding how to deal with reactivity, how to let go of reactivity. One thing I haven't mentioned yet is what is the arrow a symbol of? What does it stand for? What's clear in this particular discourse is that it doesn't stand for suffering. It stands for craving. That uh, the, the sala, the arrow, is tangha, craving, which I'm reading as reactivity, as I spoke of the other day. That's the arrow. That's what needs to be removed in the operation. We need mindfulness to see it clearly and we need intelligence to understand it well, to really see what's going on and really appreciate and understand what's going on. But the Buddha's also not naive to think that once you've pulled the arrow out, then that's the end of the story. It could be that the... Um, and this is what the text says, it could be that um, the operation doesn't actually remove all of the poison from the arrow. So this means that the doctor has to take great, um, you know, has to uh, tell the patient uh, to take a great deal of care in what they eat, to, uh, uh, to, to be very hygienic, to keep the wound clean. Um, otherwise, he says, the wound will just get infected and won't heal properly. And if the patient ignores these instructions, okay, we've got the arrow out, but now you've got to, you know, don't eat this and make sure that you keep it clean and wash carefully and so on. If you don't do that, then the wound will swell. And with its swelling, one would incur death or deadly suffering. So in other words, just to remove the arrow once, to stop reacting once, is not going to actually resolve the problem because reactivity is something that's much more deeply embedded in who we are. We need to follow a more um, mindful life. Uh, we need to, uh, in a sense, tend to ourselves much more carefully, with much more attention for our well-being. So... I mean, it goes on and on. I don't, I, it, 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 all, it also talks about um, 
about washing the wound and, and so forth and so on. And not, he says, do not walk in the wind or sun or dirt, or that might infect the wound too. Um, so if you fail to take proper attention to the after treatment, that too is going to lead you to the possibility of further infection. Now, I feel that these, this particular account of the operation and the aftercare points very strongly to the idea of the Dharma being a kind of medical intervention. The Buddha often compares himself to a doctor or a surgeon. He compares the Dharma to a treatment. He compares the Sangha, the community, to um, nursing staff who kind of help you in your, in your recovery. So the emphasis throughout is on this uh, practice as a form of healing. And if we take that a little bit deeper, this healing of reactivity is not just the healing of our attachments, our hatreds, but it's also healing this mental problem of attachment to views and opinions. Because that's a kind of reactivity too. Remember, remember there's greed, hatred and confusion, delusion. In many ways, I think confusion refers to the reactive pattern of jumping and holding on to views and opinions, as we mentioned the other day. So this is an operation. This is a medical therapy that is working on our, our destructive emotions that keep us stuck, keep us trapped, uh, keep us feeling frustrated, but also it's working on our habit of being attached to views and opinions. That too is something that needs, through this training, to be healed. So the removal of craving, the letting go of reactivity in this secular Buddhist language, the letting go of reactivity um, is not the goal. It might be the short-term goal, in other words, you need to remove the arrow um, in order that one can continue living. But that's only um, to get rid of an obstacle to something else. The problem with reactivity or craving is not that it causes suffering, although obviously it does in many, if not most, occasions. But that, I think, is missing the point. The problem with reactivity is that it prevents us from living fully. It keeps us stuck and blocked and limited and trapped. So the stopping of reactivity, the removal of the arrow, is nirvana. It's this coming to rest in a mind that is non-reactive, in a mind that is still and open, and a mind that is willing to be constantly inquiring into what is going on. In the parable, 
it's often felt that since the story ends with the removal of the arrow, that's the attainment of nirvana and everybody lives happily ever after. But I feel very much if we are to honor the logic of the metaphor of healing, then surely what this operation is more importantly about is getting the person well again. It's about getting the person back on their feet, healing the wound, making sure that there's no after effects, and then the person can live and get on with their lives. And again, here we can see a parallel with the metaphor of the raft. You leave the raft, you get to the other shore, you remove the arrow, but then you continue on your journey. And I think this is clearly the case here too, that the removal of the arrow frees you up to live um, in a non-reactive, more imaginative, creative, empathetic and responsive way in the world. So let me conclude by reading those verses again and see now whether they have a slightly different flavor having gone through this uh, reflection on the parable. Wrong-minded people do voice opinions, as do truth-minded people too. When an opinion is stated, the sage is not drawn in. There's nothing arid or barren about the sage. In other words, opinions actually dry us up. They're like a barren field. Nothing grows there. That's the problem with opinions not whether they're right or wrong, but the fact that by being attached to a fixed view or a dogma actually closes down your inner life. Because you now know what's true. There's nothing more to find out. It's decided. It's certain. The Buddhists were right. Dropping one, you clutch the next. Urged ahead by self-concern, you reject and adopt opinions as a monkey lets go of a branch and seizes another. And again, this is a reactive pattern. It's, 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 a, it's a cyclical pattern. You, you, you might get tired of one opinion, but rather than leave opinions behind, you seize on to another. And when that one wears out, you let go and you hold on to another. This is again another repetitive, sangsaric behavior. One who dwells in ultimate views and presents them as final will declare all other views inferior. He has not overcome disputes. Now again, it's interesting here. The Buddha is using in a very, very early text the word parama, ultimate. Nowhere in the early text does the Buddha uh, uh, make any uh, makes any use of the word ultimate truth. Later Buddhism, weirdly, adopts exactly the language the Buddha here rejects. It starts to maintain, this is the ultimate truth, emptiness or rigpa or something. 
and all other views are inferior. And the word for inferior is hina, as in hinayana. So some, and this was a, again a term that came about centuries after the Buddha, but he seems already in this very early text to recognize that as soon as you claim something to be really true, ultimately true, or right, you're going to dismiss people who say something different as following an inferior path, which is exactly what happened. The Mahayanists said that they've got the truth, and the Hinayanists were basically uh, wrong. The sage lets go of one position without taking another. He's not defined by what he knows, nor does he join a dissenting faction. In other words, he doesn't just let go of the view. He might let go of it, but then he becomes part of the group of people who are known as the rebels and the troublemakers. He assumes no view at all. Embrace what you see and cross the flood, or cross the river, if you like, the stream. The sage is untied to possessions, untied to material possessions, but more importantly, untied to possessing a particular opinion or view about the nature of reality. Having extracted the arrow, take care. The word care is apamada. In other words, heed the Buddha's final advice where he says, things fall apart, tread the path with care. Again, a very, very central value here. Don't long for this world or the next. In other words, don't be attached to this place where you are now. Don't get too preoccupied with this. But don't let your attention get preoccupied with what's to come after death. Effectively, live a life in which you encounter each situation that comes to be with an open, empty mind that embraces the complexity and the singularity of that moment, that is aware of how you react, the arrows that fire, does not get caught up in that, comes to rest in a still, non-reactive space, and then responds appropriately to the situation at hand. And none of that requires holding any kind of metaphysical belief. The skills that are required are those of a kind of refined sensitivity, uh, a mindfulness, an attention, a focus, but perhaps more importantly, an empathetic understanding of the other people or other forms of life or the situation at hand, such that you bring together as best you can from your body of resources a response that seeks to address what is wrong, what is troubling, what is painful in the situation that you find yourself in at any given moment. So that was the parable of the arrow.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.